Hi, y'all. Welcome to Break Drink. I'm Laura, and I'm with a special co-host, Chris Gilliard. Hi, Chris. Hi. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Great. Thank you. Good. Well, uh, I haven't ousted Jeff Jackson. He sends his love. He's just uh, consumed with a few things this semester, and we're like, that's okay. And he said, hey, you should invite people like Chris back on. And I said, hey, that's a great idea, especially when Chris produces great articles recently out in the Chronicle. And we're going to talk about um, ethics, ed tech, data, students, and more. So welcome, Chris. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. All right. So on April 8th, there was an article out in the Chronicle called How EdTech is Exploiting Students, and we'll share. It's behind a paywall, so we'll talk a bit about this article as well as maybe what's not in the article and the topics related to that in today's conversation. So if you can give a just for those who may have not read it, what this is about and what you, why you wrote it. So uh, it, the article is about, um, uh, I think, sort of a uh, very underreported um, uh, phenomenon uh, or practice in, in education. Um, and I, I start out with the anecdote of uh, the Mechanical Turk, which is um, right now um, it's a it's a sort of micro uh, um, micro task service that's run by Amazon. And there's other service there's other places that do this as well. But Amazon's is called Mechanical Turk. And what they what it is is that companies, you know, typically tech companies uh, can uh, uh, contract out small tasks for individuals to do for, you know, so it might be like, uh, you know, I have a thousand images and I want you to, you know, tell me which one has a leopard in it or something like that, you know? Um, and sometimes they're far more advanced than that, but it's, it's a task that, um, as yet AI can't really do. In fact, it's used to train AI in a lot of cases, artificial intelligence. Um, and people get paid to do this. Um, so it's sort of longer, arc about that, but it's generally seen as, as a fairly exploitive practice um, because people are paid very poorly and it, there's, um, because the tasks or their work can be rejected, they're often subject to wage theft and things like that. So I use that example to talk about how students uh, at colleges, universities, even in K through 12, um, how student labor is used to power uh, educational technologies. And how students um, are uh, rarely, if ever, compensated and rarely are even asked uh, um, permission. Um, I gave a couple of examples. I mean, but one of the prime examples in my mind has always been turn it in. Um, and how whatever people think about it or how it works now, um, the base of how they got started, well, not the base of how they function is they use a mass of student papers um, of student intellectual property and compare new papers to that body of, of papers that they already have. So for those who don't know Turnitin, it is a kind of a academic integrity uh, checker and it will verify if that paper has been submitted somewhere else, submitted within their corpus or da database of papers, and they're using students' other work to compare and contrast. So um, people often use it for both online classes, but just regular classes just to 
because I think some faculty may want to get it authentically checked to make sure that no one is plagiarizing, cheating, um, misrepresenting work and whatnot. So it was deemed as an easier way to check solutions, uh, check <laughs> uh, work that it's valid and it's authentically theirs, uh, quote unquote. So Yes. And, you know, I mean, students are not, they are generally not given a choice about whether or not they will submit their papers to turn it in. Um, and Turnitin certainly is not cutting checks, you know, either pennies or dollars to students, you know, but student work is the way they make money, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think that's inherently um, unjust. Uh, but this, I mean, Turnitin, I think, is a prime case, but there's constant examples and in, in, um, the more that uh, sort of um, platform-type technologies and and artificial intelligence-type technologies are integrated into schools. Um, We see this again and again where um, that uh, the technologies are are trained or supported by tracking students, by surveilling students, by uh, using student labor. Um, But students aren't really compensated for that. Um, and again, they're, they're rarely even asked if they want to take part in it or given a, a real choice. Like the real choice might be, do you want to pass this class or not? <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, so um, that's what my article is about. Yeah. And other simple examples you gave were thinking about predictive softwares that we look for tracking students, um, whether it's an academic advisor, enrollment, admissions, tracking their contact with places at our institutions like a lot of universities and colleges do touch points where students have to swipe in so their id goes across the university in different ways whether it's digitally or in person when they check in to um, tracking their progress within a course and some of those analytics within learning management systems or other software pieces are i'm afraid building i guess cases or predictive models that are being recommended pedagogically to people for designing courses, to teaching courses, to time on task, what you should think about. And I'm not sure if that's always, one, the best way to measure that. And two, you're right, they're um, part of these courses because they have to. It's a carrot, the grade. Uh, They're looking to finish a degree, and for them to complete the degree, they can't opt out of um, portal or learning management system or other software that we use or platforms that we use And it's timely that we're talking about this now as the explosion of uh, what we knew a long time ago in 2014, Cambridge Analytica, taking our data as one of the major platforms, Facebook, is in court. And so when I called up Chris, he's actively watching the case in the court trial right now. So (laughs) it's enthralling. Yeah, I mean, I've reached the stage of my life where I watch Senate hearings. Um, (laughs) As you do. I'm not going to judge. It took a while. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you know, and you and I have talked about this in the past and, and um, you've written about it, I've written about it. I mean, the the extent to which um, privacy is not a consideration, you know, um, I think is really important. Um, and again, I mean, the the model by which something like Facebook makes money is to monetize the, the extraction of um, people's data and, and and to monetize the surveillance of people. And we've just like, and by we, I mean education. And like as we've just layered that model onto education, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I think it's, 
it's unjust in the business world. I mean, it's, it's unjust in the social media world or whatever. Um, I mean, uh, although my, my long history of, of dealing with academic institutions tells me that they're not typically not better ethically, you know, we like to think that we are. Um, and so I'd really like to start a conversation about how we, how we, um, move to not doing that, you know? And, and I think with a lot of things going on, um, the idea of consent has, um, rightfully taken, uh, a, a, um, a front seat, um, for lack of a better term, um, in, in a lot of discussions, you know, I think, and as I said, rightfully so. I mean, I think the, the idea that we would just ask people, you know, how, you know, do you want to be a part of this? Like, do you, um, do you, do you want to do this? Like, here's what we can offer you. Here's some of the risks. Although, you know, we can't possibly articulate all of the risks. Um, yeah. And I think you're right because as researchers, you have to do IRB in US or REF, other places where you get ethical review boards, look at your studies and let you know whether you have to, how you have to inform someone, how you are taking their data, how they're using it, storing it. And we had an episode which we called, uh, do you know your policy? We'll put back into the show notes, but the terms of services people read versus what's really written and what's written legal talk is, is kind con- confusing for most they don't read it they just click go okay and i think some of the consent that comes with that is um when they say third party people they never define who they are who's taking their information who's using it and i do like that issues um whether it's the actually me too issues one of them or the right to be forgotten issue is thinking about consent and what we do with ourselves, our personal selves, and our data and information is being thought of. And I can't wait for that to float over across the pond from Europe um, because that trickle-down effect, I think, is coming. I hope it's coming soon. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things with the hearings is that several uh, senators have asked uh, Mark Zuckerberg if he's willing to extend the uh, uh, general data privacy regulations like the EU um, regulations that are, are coming, if he's willing to extend that to all Facebook users. Um, and he's kind of hedged a little bit on that. Um, but uh, as it stands, he said, for the most part, yes. So that's going to be really interesting. I mean, um, uh, you know, so like, like we take something like facial recognition, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, and again, we've talked about this before, but that people don't, for the most part, don't own the rights to their own face. Um, right. in America anyway, um, except for two states, I think Illinois and maybe California have, have some laws, which actually Facebook is lobbying heavily against. Um, <laughs> right, right. That's but, scary. Um, you referenced an article like in there, I think it was Arizona state that mm-hmm. did the, what was it? A facial recognition software? Yeah. So Arizona state is one of the schools, um, they're on the real, um, I mean, I don't, I don't call it, I'd call it bloody edge, not like bleeding edge, right? <laughs> but they're like the real bloody edge of a lot of the, like a lot of this, um, um, ad tech stuff, you know? Um, and one of the things they're, um, they had this, uh, and I reference it in the Chronicle piece. They are starting to use, uh, student ID cards, which also, um, are often, uh, you know, debit cards, 
mm-hmm. and they use it to track students across um, campus. Um, you know, how long are they in the library? How long are they here? Like, what did they spend money on at the at at the at this particular shop? And they're using that info um, to start to develop a uh, a model for saying, you know, who's uh, what kind, what what's the profile of a student who persists, you know. Um, but again, uh, as far as I can tell, they haven't really sat down with students. Right. And this is onerous, right? Mm-hmm. This is the argument they would make, right? But they haven't sat down with students and said, this is what we're doing. These are, you know, the benefits that we think we, you could get from it. These are some of the risks, you know, do you want to do this or not? Right. That, like that conversation has not happened. Um, and I think some faculty and staff are starting to think about that for themselves because our students are part of the labor, but we are as well working at these institutions. So they collect. Um, so I know an example and when faculty get up in arms about something, you, they, you hear it because the faculty governance at uh, universities and colleges. And I think one of them was putting our data into this information system that would rate you for tenure and promotion. And there's kind of a spread across the grid and it was to be standardized for the institution when people are like, well, we already have other spaces that do this, whether it's Google Scholars or ResearchGate. They're like, why would we put this into this system and what will you be doing with it? And how? I said, you don't give that opportunity to your students, but you're asking the same questions that the students should be asking. Right. Yes, this is so I'm, so, I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, it's so interesting because, yeah, some of the people, some of the most vocal uh, supporters of analytics for students do not want to have those same tools applied to them or their profession. Right. Which I think is, is really strange. Like it's a, it's a weird gap in the way people think about things. Right. I mean, um, if I think that, you know, I, a, a part of my pedagogy is I don't really ask students to do something that I wouldn't do or, or like don't think is right or, or whatever, you know, like, so, um, if I wouldn't, if I think that a tool is not right for me, you know, if I think it's an invasion of my privacy or a violation of my rights, or if it's somehow unfair, then why would I think it would be okay for students? Um, so I don't really understand that line of thinking. It's a hard but question you ask there that many can't answer. <laughs> so that's a good question. But it's also really, um, it, it sort of, uh, to me, really um, betrays a, a lack of, uh, of forward thinking because, I mean, we know if we just look at how the history of, you know, of technology or of surveillance or, um, or control for that matter, that the, the things that, you know, um, often there are groups, marginalized or, or less powerful groups who get tested, you know, for, who get of methods of control are tested on them, but they eventually get extended to larger swaths of the population. You know, so if you don't think that it's fair that students are surveilled in a particular way, uh, just from a self-interest standpoint, uh, as an instructor or professor, you know, 
you should probably fight very hard to make sure that that's not done because it's coming for you. <laughs> I would agree. And th- this tracking happens with our staff and practitioners too. So there are ones where they do intake from counseling to advising to predictive models of, I remember as an advisor getting a report because they did some incoming freshman tests that tested them at X level, meaning they weren't academically ready. And there was models where, inaccurate when they're like they were kind of like intervention approaches and you had to meet with ex-students that fit into this model well they were wrong the data was wrong and the people mm-hmm. i met with um there's only few and far between i said what about talking to individuals and outreach to all because every student can use a touch point not not targeting some select group and it was really peculiar and when we asked um it was one of the standardized test companies that's out there that's probably bought them all now i can't think of the name uh they we said, how do you reach this approach? And they're like, well, they tested or scored this. I said, how do you know the student doesn't just put C's all through the <laughs> test and not really pay attention during orientation? Or I don't know, like that's, how is that the best measure of um, performance or the readiness or the, the need for an, an academic intervention? And I get what they're trying to do is um, reach out to those that can't be reached. And I said, well, maybe we have too many students enrolled. Or if you don't have that kind of support that's complemented with a technology that's not invasively suggesting they're going to fail, going to struggle or something else, then why are we using it? Or why do we have this institution opening this way? Yeah. I I mean, in those, I mean, I think, you know, those are the questions. Those are the larger questions that people don't want to solve um, or don't even want to ask, which is why we get a lot of the technologies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you have a class with 300 people, and you find that many students aren't persisting, well, you know, there's a couple of ways you could deal with that. Um, and so far, a lot of the, the, the current methods have been like, let's, you know, let's have, let's use chat bots, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how about like, we don't have classes with 300 people, right? And that's like a, I mean, a much more difficult um, conversation and a much a thornier problem, you know? Or the example of why do you have, so I have a large online class, as you think about that, um, more than 300. And the reason why some of my students sign up, it's not actually for the class. It's because they want to get financial aid and they needed X amount of hours to get the financial aid that actually might be for their living and not their schoolwork, but they don't want to take the class. So they have to be in it to a certain point. And I said, those are some realities of our students as well. It's not that they're not academically um, prepared or ready or able to do it. It's they're just there to fill a course to get some money. And that's what they're trying to like bid the system that way. And I, and they're like, really, this is what happens. I said, yeah, most of them are already in my major. So. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting too. I mean, I think um, the fact that you're as, as the, as the instructor that you're cued into this in a way that other people are not, you know, again, I mean, I, I think it speaks to the ways that individuals, um, you know, often like the people teaching the class are in the best position to to um, address some of these things or, or like should be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And often we are not, you know. Um, and it's rare because I think they give some of these larger courses and maybe they support them with TAs or teaching fellows, teaching assistants um, or whatever they give them to adjunct instructors and they give them people who don't have 
the voice at the school. So um, most of them have to be full-time faculty or tenure track. And um, I'm, I'm in a position where I can, and I do speak to that, but I know that they've had larger courses and other disciplines taught by a lot of adjunct staff or lecturers who don't feel comfortable shutting their mouth off like I do. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that, I mean, it goes back to labor, you know, it does. I do and, like, you said that talk a little bit about, um, the labor piece. Cause you, you put out two points that I really thought was, um, the two things with data that are impacted the most are how we think of data and the use of labor and how we think about it as consent. So we talked a little bit about consent, but how else do you see labor being impacted with how we're taking in data? So, um, I mean, what the reason I started out with that mechanical Turk example is that um, the the the, the uh, inspiration for the mechanic the AMT Amazon Mechanical Turk was a uh, an invention. Oh, and I, I won't have the dates right. I put it in the article, mm-hmm. but there was an uh, there was a an invention. Um, a guy made a thing that was supposed to be a, a machine that played chess. Mm-hmm. I think it was like the late 1700s. Yeah. Um, he had this elaborate contraption, and he fooled people into thinking it was a machine that played chess. But there was a really a man hidden inside of it who was <laughs> manipulating the board, right? Um, but for a long time, he, he had people fooled, right? Um, and he called this 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 thing the Turk. Um, and it's like so the Wizard the, of Oz. Sorry, not, yeah. to, not to spoiler alert that movie for you if you don't know that. But right. the man, the man behind the curtain, the person behind the curtain. Exactly. And so I use I start off with that example because then and now, you know, so a lot of people don't understand. Um, and I, I shouldn't say it that way. There's a lot of people who don't know that the extent to which human beings power our technology, um, that, uh, whether it's content moderators or, you know, who, who, who creates the training data for artificial intelligence, you know, like a lot of that work is invisible, mm-hmm. you know? So if we were able to look at the backside of, um, Facebook or Amazon or a self-driving car, you know, we would see all these hands, um, of that are mainly um, intentionally made invisible um, because we're supposed to believe that technology is magic. Um, you know, and I mean, going back to any kind of like, you know, like uh, Marxist, uh, you know, um, uh, discussion, right? Like there, there's that alienation of labor, like lets us, um, operate or lets us, <laughs> right? It loses our conscience in, I think, some important ways, um, to in, important in the sense that, like, society uh, runs without us uh, rioting. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll ask you to delete that part. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to. No, I was thinking about it in terms of, I was just looking over, um, uh, it was at Nick Sersenak's book, The Platform, Capitalism. So we are saying it's the platform, it's it's the logarithm, but people have designed these things. So whether it's the technical code, the structures and systems, there's a series of teams and people behind making these decisions. And, and that's something that um, they want you to control. And I have a book that I've read on my shelf called Irresistible by Adam Alter. And 
they design these tools to be irresistible, meaning we want you to come back. We want you to be um, addicted to this. We want you to find use and can you leave it behind? And this could come from wanting people to be on Facebook because there's not another social, large social scaled something where your family, friends, relatives um, are. And they also want you to return and do what they want you to do is feed back into that platform. And mm-hmm. I think we do that in education as well. So we've become reliant on things like whether it's portal systems or student information systems or learning management systems that do certain things like track grade. Um, there's these standard platforms, which also fall into patriarchal structures. This is the top down approach to how learning is teacher in front of the classroom. So now it's teacher in front of learn learning management system that controls that and is the one that guides it. It's, it's still the same thing. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, again, I mean, and we've seen some movements, whether it's like domain of one's own or things like that, that, um, have started to come around in terms of like valuing students work, um, giving them ownership of it and control of it. But the degree to which, um, so, uh, you know, whether it's Turnitin or Canvas or a lot of other systems that are, you know, like class dojo, you know, from K through 12, a way, a big part of how systems um, are improved is by looking at the data of the, of its users. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so traditionally we don't see that as work, right? So Facebook ostensibly gets better by looking at how people use it. You know, Twitter gets better by um, aggressively, you know, extracting people's data and surveilling them and seeing how they use it. So in a, for consumer products, that's kind of one thing. I mean, I have some problems with it, but mm-hmm. whatever. But for educational technologies, again, because we don't, because students don't have the option um, You know, and because uh, when their data is extracted, it's going to be used or it's part of it's part of that system long after those students move on, whether they, you know, graduate or whatever. Um, And so that that work that they've put in, right, um, is invisible. Like People don't think about it as work. But, um, you know, I don't know how people define work, but if, if someone is doing a task and someone is profiting, right? Like mm-hmm. the person doing the task probably should have some role in the profit, right? I mean, I, yeah. Um, so what are some things that you could recommend, um, whether they're instructors or administrators or practitioners in higher ed, think about before um, or if they are using any sort of technology platform, learning technology, ed tech technology platform, um, what are some questions they should be asking themselves if they're approaching it for teaching or they're approaching it for supporting students in a way? So what are some things they could ask themselves? Well, I mean, I think it's really important um, to the extent that we can, um, we find out uh, how companies, um, so who who owns data is really important, mm-hmm. whether it stays with the institution, you know, so the, the, the college or university, um, typically it, you know, some of it does, some of it doesn't, whether it stays with the platform, um, such as canvas or something like that and who they share it with, 
you know, delay typically. So often that's referred to as third parties. So I think it gets um, the further away from uh, the ownership by an individual student, um, the further away it gets from that, I think the more problematic it is. Uh, and so I think, you know, and again, we've talked about this, but it's really, I think it's really important that if we are, um, so instructors, professors, instructional technologists, administrators, um, we have a, a really, I mean, really heavy responsibility because we are in a position of telling people, um, you need to sign up for this. Um, you have to use this, this technology. And when we do that, like, so, um, I, I, I grant that in order to do our jobs, we, we're going to need to do that. Um, but if we're going to do that or when we do that, I think it's really important that we also take as much care as possible to give students choices, um, to inform students of potential benefits and risks, um, and to, to look at things like privacy policies and data sunsets, you know, how long do, do, do companies use data, who they share it with, um, and to when we can, you know, to the extent that we do have power, um, not sign students up for um, services that are going to uh, um, that have some kind of extractive or exploitive model, you know, and that's going to look different for everybody, you know. So I've had um, um, extensive talks with people in, at my writing center because they say, well, if someone comes in and you know, if a professor comes in and says, well you know, I want to use Turnitin or I want to use Grammarly or whatever. Like, I'm not in a position to tell them no, mm-hmm. um, which is true. Um, but you often are in a position to say, well, here's how, we're, how we think about it. Or this is like a tool we prefer. Or like, let's sit down and talk about assignment design, you know, or whatever the case may be. Um, but, it, you know, as we move up the chain, right, in terms of like, the ability to, to say no or to, to um, enact uh, policies. I think um, we, we need to ex- uh, exert that power in ways that are more ethical and just, right? About, um, you know, I, I mean, this, this is, it sounds very simple. And in a, in a way it is. I mean, it, the, to enact it is going to be very complex. But let's just ask people what they want, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, if we could just start there, you know, with, um, so if, I mean, colleges obviously are interested in retention, right? If you said to a student who's coming in, you know, first year student or whenever they come in, like, here's the thing we do with our, with your data, right? Here's why we ask you these questions. Um, this is what we think, how we think this can help you. This is how we think it can help other students. Again, these are some of the risks that come with that. Do, would you like to take part in this, right? Like, for the most part, we don't do that. Or we don't do it in a clear enough way that articulates what we the, what people think the benefits and risks are. So what we I'm just, hearing you say is be transparent with your yes, students. Yes, yes. <laughs> You're um, right, we don't. We say just fill this out. Yeah, you just mm-hmm. have to do it. Or sign up for here because all the students have it. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. And because traditionally student or because traditionally schools have collected a lot of data 
It's like, well, schools have always collected a lot of data. Well, that part is true. But they haven't always had, uh, you know, shared it with all these different parties or combined it with um, data from other places. You know, I mean, like, why are, why are colleges and universities um, buying data about students? Like, that's a problem. <laughs> Absolutely. No. And I think what you, you said, it, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, um, there's things you just don't inform our students about or ask process. And if I hear someone said, this is how we've always done it, that's mm-hmm. going to get you probably nowhere. And it's probably going to get you to court at some point in the future. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, if, uh, you know, consent, transparency, um, you know, uh, but it, it's a lot of work. I mean, uh, you know, inside, we, you know, we were talking about this, I think, before, um, earlier. Inside Higher Ed just had a piece of, from a professor about how great she thinks um, Turnitin is. And I, I, you know, I refer to Turnitin often because it's like such a, a convenient example. Well, like, there are lots of things you could do. Um, so I talk to my students about plagiarism a lot. There's different kinds of plagiarism and different reasons people plagiarize and things like that. But, and so there are lots of ways you can um, circumvent plagiarism that don't involve like um, exploiting students' labor and violating their privacy. But they're actually more work. I mean, I think they're more effective and better for a student. I think it makes a better class, all those things. But they're also actually more work, you know. Yeah, um, like having multiple drafts or having outlines yeah. plus draft and progression, which yeah. I, my students are doing that for one of my courses right now for one of their writing projects. And it is a lot more work, but you know it's their work. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's, that's it. Um, so, so we need to be less lazy and do the work is also what I'm hearing you say. <laughs> right. This is good. Okay. Right. Transparency. But, you know, I, I mean, Think about what you want to actually take from students and other stakeholders, because it's not just our learners that put the information to some of these systems. It's us too. Right. So. Yeah. And when, when we return it to the labor question, I mean, um, given sort of the precarity of, of, of uh, many people who teach, you know, like sometimes it's, it's not, it's a, it's, it wouldn't, you know, to say it's more work, is kind of an easier thing for me to say as someone who has tenure, you know, um, and teaches uh, a set number of classes and picks my own schedule, you know, for people who are driving to, you know, teach five or six classes at three different campuses, this is kind of a different story, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's also a part of the equation. Like how do we, you know, I mean, that's part of the like heavier question, right? How do we create systems where it's possible that people can have these kinds of conversations and these types of pedagogies in their classes, you know, that don't make it seem like uh, just pressing a button or having students upload a paper is like the logical solution. Yeah. And I would hope those faculty that are kind of full-time tenured at your, at those institutions are having conversation about maybe their distributed labor force. So if they're teachers or support staff that are part-time or adjuncts, why don't you have a conversation about, what does that look for your overall program? And it, those are hard things to have. And we recently had one just about the lack of, I think some of our student learners need support with writing, maybe research um, software or experiences or help. And it, it's not going to come from 
having this large adjunct labor force that doesn't meet regularly or come together, you'll see that breakdown and um, figuring out what your needs are is calling to question some bigger things, which is organizational <laughs> change, culture. <Yes. laughs> uh, we're not going to fix those, but these are yeah. part of the issues I think you brought up when you talk about the, that labor force who has the choice or privilege and affordance to speak up about those and those that are in the system tethered or loosely tethered to institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we just brought more problems than solutions. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're, we're at our time then. Uh, no, but no. I think you're right, though, about looking at data because our institutions have to be compliant with data and how we use it for research, uh, typically how we store it for other ways we access for evaluation and protect data for privacy reasons, right? So why aren't we putting some of the tools into the same accountability in the same system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So should we end on a cheerier note? I mean, yeah. I don't know. Okay, let's end on a cheerier <laughs> note. Um, let's talk about. Oh, what are, what are we reading these days? What are you listening to these days? Something, tell uh, us something fun. I am. I mean, all I'm reading are is stuff about data right now. Um, I have uh, algorithms of oppression from Sophia Noble. Oh, I want to read that. Uh, um, I have. Uh, <coughs> Oh, gosh, what's the name of Virginia Eubanks' book? Automating Inequality from uh, Virginia Eubanks and The Poverty of Privacy Rights by Kiara Bridges. Um, so I'm really excited about those. Uh, That's awesome. Um, if I can nerd out for a moment, Avengers comes out in two weeks. I think I'm going <laughs> to advance tickets. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's it. I like it. Oh, that's good. oh, you know what? I do have a. I do have a. I am reading um, something. There's a, actually, a hometown guy. Um, Salad Saladin Ahmed is a um, science fiction writer, and he's he's uh, from the Detroit area, and he's he's doing this comic book about a. Um, a uh, it's called. A, oh gosh, oh I'm so sorry. I'm I'm blanking on. Oh, it's called Abbott. Um, about a, um, a, a black uh, a woman who's a journalist, and it's set in the 70s. Um, but cool. uh, it's kind of got a supernatural thing going on. Uh, his stuff's amazing, so that, that's also really cool. What's his name again? Uh, Saladin um, Ahmed. Great. Yeah. I need something fun to read, because like you, I just have Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of... Math destruction, uh, irresistible, uh, how devices are taking over our world. So I think, yeah, we need to get out of our, <laughs> they're fun to us books, but uh, yeah. no, I think right. that's great. Um, I have been reading a book, I think I heard, um, I don't know who recommended it, it's probably Katie Linder, but How Artists Work, Daily Rituals. So I have that, and mm-hmm. uh, they, talk to, they talk about different like authors and what their practices were. Like if they got up at five thirty a.m., they walked, they rode, so they walked around, and it's everyone from like Jane Austen to uh, Truman Capote. So just there. Mm-hmm. So that's one of my fun books, and then um, the subtle art of not giving a fuck is the other one. So. Ooh, mm-hmm. oh, that sounds like something I'd be into. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so that's that's about it. And my fun listen uh, recommendation is a band, uh, Sylvan Esso. I don't know if you know them. I, I'm I'm not sure. I th- it sounds familiar. What kind of music is it? 
it's kind of it's it's a guy and a girl from Durham, North Carolina, and it's kind of dancey, groovy uh, song and techno mix. So I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes for everyone's listening. That's what's up. If you need a little dance That's, break, there you yeah. go. Yeah, That's actually my study music. Perfect. And my, my writing music. Yeah. Yeah. So Sylvan Esso. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for taking a piece of your day out for me and chatting with us. Uh, Jeff sends his love and. As, as usual, Break Drink welcomes anyone to join the pod. And come on, we welcome all soapboxes, rants, and whatnot. So join us again. Thanks again, Chris. Always a pleasure, Laura. Thank you. Be well. Have a good one. All right, you too.